Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dr. Scott Jensen Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Dr. Scott Jensen and Royce White. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we get into it, I want to give you a chance to just introduce yourself, tell everybody who you are. Um, so you can. Uh, Royce White, um, born and raised here in Minnesota, Minnesota native, St. Paul, by way of the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the primary uh, characterization I'd give myself these days. Great. Pro athlete, yes, mm-hmm. author, mm-hmm. but first and foremost, I'm an American. Mm-hmm. All right, perfect, short and sweet. So we'll just well, jump. hold it before we get started. I never have been able to perform at the level Royce does. So could we ask Royce, could you give us just one or two moments when you think back to your athletic career? I mean, because you perform athletically, you know, one in 50,000 people don't perform at the level you did. What are a couple of things that just in your mind give you particular satisfaction about being a, a professional athlete in the NBA? Um, wow, that's a, I never, I never do much reflecting back on that, so I appreciate the question. Um, it, it, actually, my senior year at Hopkins was special, and it was one of those euphoric moments you hear athletes talk about uh, when, they, when they look back on their career, and I think it was so special for me because I had transferred from De La Salle, I had had a little bit of trouble at De La Salle uh, as a junior, and you know, I was still ranked very high. I was the highest ranked player in my class and in the state. Um, so, so I was an All-American in status. But my high school career specifically uh, had had some turmoil. Um, you know, and, and for high school basketball players, your career is separated from school season and AAU season because AAU is so prominent in basketball. So I was having a ton of success in AAU, but I didn't feel content because I wasn't having the success in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you spend the majority of your year, right? Uh, and I had a, a deep, deep connection to my coach at De La Salle, Dave Thorson, who's now back at the University of Minnesota with Ben Johnson as an assistant. And um, yeah, I lost part of my junior season and going into my senior year at Hopkins, Nobody knew what was going to happen, right? Is there was all these questions looming over our season, um, but but we had a probably the most talented team in history, which can be tough, right? To, to, you know, a lot of people think, well, a talented team is a no-brainer. No, it, sometimes a talented team has too much talent, but we had a great leader there in Coach Novak, um, Junior Kenny Novak, um, and. You know, it was it was a special season, and winning that championship in the Target Center against ICO, against a very good ICO team, there was this euphoria that came over me after going 31 and 0, and and just reaching perfection during the season um, at 18 years old. So I guess I started my adult life with the perfect season as kind of a you know a dream come true in in, in many ways. But but I had contributed a lot, and it was uh, it was special. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's great, and I think. Well, I think one of the things that we want to kind of talk about in this podcast is um, mental health, which I think is kind of an umbrella word we use over a bunch of, like, you know, there's so many things that make up what mental health is. And I know that um, you've had struggles with mental health and I want to give you, what's what's your, I guess, how has mental health affected you personally throughout your life and your career? Well, I would say, I would say that mental health has affected my entire life from day one Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and part of. The, the biggest part of my story, what I'm probably most well known for, is my mental health advocacy in the NBA mm-hmm. and challenging them to have 
better policy at the time it was any policy whatsoever but but uh, in the general sense better policy and and i guess at the time at 21 it really wasn't so much about nba players getting adequate mental health care mm-hmm. it was that i saw that the nba was a representative of this global corporate community and that the global corporate community's attitude around mental health was in crisis right mm-hmm. uh, and 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 I faced this this media dynamic where mental health wasn't being talked about much yet in the public square, and here I come with a generalized anxiety disorder, and people were getting hung up on that, and the fact that I'm afraid of flying, and all of these different nuances that really weren't getting at the bigger, deeper question. And and what I was trying to convey, and I think is important for people to start from with mental health, is that mental health is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we all have it. Every every person who's ever lived mm-hmm. had a mental health, mm-hmm. which is an integral piece of a comprehensive health. Uh, and and even a layer deeper is is I was trying to convey to the establishment that unless you get familiar with mental health in general, mm-hmm. then all of your stigmas around what to look for with mental health are going to be off. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you you know, they had the perception sort of that the players who have mental health issues are going to be these anomalies yeah. like a Ron Artest, now Metal World Peace mm-hmm. or, you know, the player who gets a DUI and is in trouble. And now he has to admit that he got a DUI because he has a drinking problem or he's smoking marijuana too much and nobody can really figure out why he, he can't quit. And mm-hmm. you know, though that was their scope of mental health. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there going, no, no, no. <clears throat> This is the one issue that causes all of us to look in the mirror and say, mm-hmm. those aren't the markers. Mm-hmm. Those are good indicators. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a mental health crisis below the surface of, you know, problems that manifest. That is the real mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And, and that's reflected in the in the statistics like two thirds of people with mental health issues. Mm-hmm diagnosable mental health issues never get diagnosed mm-hmm. right so those type of stats informed my thinking and and what I was trying to tell the the league and and just the corporatocracy in general is mental health is another way to say the human condition mm-hmm. absolutely right absolutely where, where mind body and spirit converge into our perceivable existence mm-hmm. they want to talk about anxiety and aerophobia I'm like and it wasn't by accident and, and we'll talk more about that I'm sure but but in, in retrospect what I saw was I thought they, they had a lack of knowledge. That wasn't true. I, I gave that to them. I conceded that because I was 21. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, here's this NBA institution that I've idolized since I was a, a small child. It's a billion-dollar corporation. Of course right. they know what mental health is. Um, but a part of me arrogantly wanted to be the person who bridged the gap for them in knowledge. But there was no bridge to gap because they knew. Mm-hmm. And, and really, they the NBA and the bigger corporate community already had plans to be predatory around psychological vulnerability mm-hmm. with the big tech wave. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't know that at 21. Absolutely. They knew it. Mm-hmm. Wall Street, DC, mm-hmm. Hollywood, pro sports, mm-hmm. all of the central banks, mm-hmm. all of them knew what the growth model was for Facebook and and all of these uh, big tech institutions yeah. way before I <laughs> did, right? So that was part of the the motivation not to, to have a full throat of mental health conversation too. And I couldn't have known that at 21. I just wanted people to have better information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me, as a family doc, and having 
had 40 years under my belt. I see mental health as this, maybe if it's a bar graph, you got the y-axis and the x-axis, it's in here. It, it consists of two things, mental illness and mental wellness. And I agree with you totally, Royce. We all go back and forth. This isn't a linear curve. It's sure. more of a scattergram. Mm-hmm. Some people think of uh, mental health being if you're below this line, you're mentally ill. If you're above the line, you're mentally okay. And I tell my patients all the time, no, that's not the way it is. It's actually more like this. And if we're in this space, we're comfortable with ourselves. You know, we might be high energy towards the end, especially with bipolar kinds of things. We're a lot of times people can be bipolar and they don't have the manic part of it. They just have the down here and they can still have these poles down here. They're depressed and sad and they can't quite shake and they don't know why. But if they're in this normal range, they're okay. Other yeah. people will be where they maybe never get down here, but they, they have these manic periods. But then when they're in here, they're okay and they're not edgy. Bottom line is, you're right, Royce. Mental health has got to be part of the mind-body-spirit equation. Yeah. And it hasn't been. And I wouldn't be able to have the expertise to blame it on the NBA per se. I would blame it, frankly, on my profession. I think doctors have become enamored Mm -hmm. with coding and labels. Mm -hmm. And then if we do that right, we get paid more. Mm -hmm. We've seen psychiatry in my career, in my 40 years in medicine, I've seen psychiatry move from what I would consider a field that was strongly devoted to therapy and counseling and helping patients find a way Mm -hmm. to be their own best therapist Mm -hmm. because ideally that would be what you'd want Mm -hmm. but they've moved psychiatrists has moved into literally many of them are polypharmacists Mm -hmm. it's what pill to write it's well we'll add this one on top well i have a side effect i'll be very honest with you um my brother had schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and committed suicide Mm -hmm. and he did quite well when he took his medicines. Mm. But some of the side effects for his medicines were so concerning to him that he frequently would fall off. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the best prescriber of antipsychotics and antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents are family docs because we're really connected with you. We're gonna have that conversation and if, if a patient comes in and says, well, you know, this pill is definitely helping me. I'm able to let go of things a little bit. I'm not obsessing as much. That's a good thing. But then they might say, but I've noticed these two things. Mm-hmm. And then we have to talk about that and say, well, is there another choice? Should we change the dose? Do you want to try going off? Mm-hmm. Whatever. I remember, Andy, when we started um, this clinic, and we started about four or five years ago, one of the first things that happened to us, I went and hired two therapists, two psychologists, because mm-hmm. I thought we have got to bring mental health into the equation of primary care. And one of the first things that happened was one of the major insurance companies in this area farmed out all payment procedures to a little company. And the first thing that that little company did, still a pretty big size company, was reduce what they'd pay us. They literally dropped our reimbursement 40% for mm-hmm. each patient seen. Mm-hmm. So I had built this model, okay, I could do these two therapists, I could have them here, and we could build a practice, and all of a sudden, before we even got out of the chute, we're 40% down on, on income that we projected. There just hasn't been real serious discussion about 
incorporating mental health issues into the realm of physical health. And it mm. it is so interconnected. Mm. I mean, I'm an yeah. obsessive individual. I'm a skeptic guy. I'm a skeptical mm. person. And I've seen so many patients that, you know, we have our obsessions, we have our quirks. Mm. I think twice in my life, I've had profound, unexpected, illogical moments of overwhelming panic. Mm. When I was stuck in an elevator for seven minutes, I was never at risk, mm. but I just, I couldn't believe it. I mean, my vision left, I was sweating. I felt like I wanted to throw up and I was trapped. And one other time it happened when I was on an airplane on a tarmac out of Las Vegas. Mm. And I mean, I was in no danger. I couldn't get myself out of that logic, mm -hmm. out of that, that trap. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I find so enjoyable about your, your willing to talk, willingness to talk about it, Royce, is mm -hmm. you're just brutally honest. Because if we could talk a little bit about what does this really look like, let's strip away the label, mm -hmm. but what, is it, what does it really feel like to be incapacitated mm -hmm. by an anxiousness that you can't get yourself to work your way through mm -hmm. and it's taking you away from the ability to do something that you have been gifted with to be able to do at this level mm -hmm. and you can't do it mm -hmm. whether it's golfing or basketball or doing surgery mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what is it what does it really look like to the person suffering from that because if we don't really know what it looks like if all we're gonna do is hide behind a doggone label mm -hmm. we're really not interested in knowing about what you're right. at yeah well I'd say that <clears throat> I have a pretty interesting um, history in that specific context because I come from a professional basketball, professional sports setting where there are a bunch of stigmas around people's ideas of even what it means to deal with anxiety from a performance standpoint. And that was one of the key nuances of how I knew that as a society and a culture, our attitude around this topic was way off kilter because I did live with anxiety and there were moments where I had incapacitating anxiety. Rarely was it ever during performance. Um, and, and I performed at a high level mm -hmm. on a consistent basis while having a, an anxiety disorder. And I think a lot of people are high functioning with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Now there are severe mental illnesses, which is a different category completely, mm -hmm. SMIs, um, you know, and then how frequently people can cross over into different parts of this spectrum is is an important starting point but i'm living proof that there are people who are very high functioning with with mental illnesses um and, and i always used to get the same question how can you go out there and perform this way in front of seventeen thousand people if you have anxiety and i say you don't understand anxiety mm -hmm. right and, and so there needs to be a real reimagining in, in our view of mental health in general. And I, and I, I would say that, that by and large, when I, when I say, I, I'm not blaming the NBA for the mental health crisis. That, that's ridiculous in, in, in every sense. But they are the watering hole for this global corporate community. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the real roadblocks for them in properly addressing mental health or being a spearhead as a very influential global institution is the conflict of interest, yeah. right? And, and that's what you're talking about with the medical industrial complex as well, is that there's too many conflicts of interest that, that hinder us from being honest, brutally honest. So here I am, a 21-year-old kid, I'm like, hey, just came from an all-American college season, I'm ready to go, let's get to the basketball. 
what about my anxiety? Are you guys going to, you know, if I have a panic attack and, and for whatever reason I can't make the flight from Milwaukee to Chicago and I have to drive and I may miss the practice uh, that that's scheduled there this afternoon because I'm on a six-hour road, you know, drive instead of a two-hour flight uh, that's arena to, uh, to hotel, uh, am I going to be fined? Mm-hmm. And they couldn't answer those questions. And, and so my response was, well, <clears throat> okay, uh, well, what are the policies? Uh, well, we don't have policy. Okay, well, can we create an addendum, let's say, that incorporates mental health and, and lets the general health language in our collective bargaining agreement service the mental health component? No, we can't do that. Well, why can't we do that? Well, the CBA can't be changed. Well, I know that's a lie. Even a 21-year-old rookie knows that that's not true. The CBA is always getting changed. Uh, and if you come into the league at that age and you have a veteran agent like I did who negotiated Kevin Garnett's first contract, now he's barred from being an agent because of you know, the whole NCAA scandal uh, uh, that was documented a few years ago. But uh, we knew that they changed the CBA all the time. And what is a CBA? Collective bargaining agreement. Okay. Right. Uh, and that's negotiated between the, the players in our union and the, and the league owners. Um, so we knew that that was a lie. So then the next one was, well, we'd have to get all the owners to agree. Okay. Well, I'm willing to I'm willing to sit down and take the time to have that conversation. Well, there's no way we could do it. Okay. And even more so, if we put a mental health policy down on paper, there's nothing that says players won't start to fake mental illnesses in order to still be paid and not play. Okay. Now we got a problem. <laughs> now, now, in trying to challenge the corruption or the lack of understanding or perspective, I further uncovered the need for the policy that I initially suggested. And I think that's often what, in, in, the, in the medical field, as I'm watching the landscape, a lot of doctors are, are running into now is as they go to challenge the thing that needs to be challenged, the establishment in trying to double down on a corrupt position is further letting you guys know that the challenge is necessary. So you're caught in this. And let me jump in on that. <laughs> I think um, in medicine, we're oftentimes far more comfortable establishing a diagnosis mm-hmm. if we can do a lab test. So we do a throat culture. Yep, you got strep, we'll treat it. Um, you're tired. Yep, your thyroid is underactive, we'll treat it. But when it comes to mental health, yeah. there's no lab test. No lab. So what have we done? Mm-hmm. Exactly what you'd think. We created a test. It's not a lab test. We'll create a survey. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a patient do a, a PHQ-9, uh, a public health, I can't remember what, private health questionnaire or something. But there's nine items, and you mark them. Very arbitrary. Um, I think it's four different levels, agree, strongly agree, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you get three points for this, two points for this. But basically, if you add up to more than 15, you're pretty darn depressed. If you add up to above 10, you're depressed. If you're five to 10, it's squishy. Under five, you're good, don't worry. Well, what do you do when you do a survey? I mean, if it's a Monday, that's different than on a Wednesday. Yeah. For sure. If morning versus afternoon versus evening. Exactly. Yeah. And so what we do is now we're, now we're fighting with the patient. Now we're telling you, well, maybe you'll fake it. And uh, so now we've absolutely destroyed any real and genuine commitment to elevating mental health issues into the real realm of medical care because now we're saying no the survey doesn't show it <laughs> that survey it is isn't worth the piece of paper it's on in some situations yes. sometimes it might be helpful and so you're stuck in in this place and i think that one of the hardest things is 
with mental health. We are so dynamic as humans. We are not the same on a Monday morning as we are on a Monday afternoon. And we've got to get around that. We've got to get deeper, wider. We really have to have a commitment to say, how can we help? But I think our system today is more and more this with the patient. I think you've got this medical corporate complex Mm -hmm. and you've got the patient here who's always feeling sort of at a disadvantage because they don't get to call the shots. and and the and it's 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 this is what my intuition and spirit told me mm-hmm. is that that friction mm-hmm. is much deeper even than mental health care provider establishment mm-hmm. and patient. Mm-hmm. Our society is at odds with the human condition, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the human spirit in many ways. Mm-hmm. Now, am I a perfectionist? In some sense, right? as an athlete, yeah, yeah I, 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 I have that critique. But am I? Do I expect that from government or the state or the establishment, the, the corporate No, mm-hmm. no, we don't per, per expect perfection. I don't expect perfection, but we are so deeply in defiance of God mm-hmm. that we're, we're naturally antithetical mm-hmm. to everything a human needs to be, mm-hmm. and it could just start with agency in the most general sense just have an agency mm-hmm. right and, and and so the, the reason the NBA and I were in such direct conflict was their system is paternalistic mm-hmm. they don't want you to have any agency mm-hmm. right they want to know where you are at all times what you're doing where you're going with mm-hmm. that's that's a non-starter mm-hmm. <laughs> as an American institution that should be a non-starter right. but when you start to incorporate this model where human beings become commodities explicitly like in a professional sports context mm-hmm. our culture and attitude is even more uh, accepting of the idea that you should be treated as a machine mm-hmm. and that wasn't that wasn't un that that wasn't unrelated or mm-hmm. it, it was sort of prophetic in that we are becoming more and more enamored with mm-hmm. and in love with the idea that human beings aren't so necessary mm-hmm. and that machines mm-hmm. are better suited to, to fit our establishment. And that's what the professional sports athletes right. saw. We see it firsthand. Mm-hmm. We had that intuition mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago where we're like, whoa, we're not machines. Mm-hmm. So now the establishment goes, oh, well, we don't even need it. Athletes, pretty soon they'll be robots. <laughs> yeah, you, should, you remember the song? I think it was from the uh, 60s uh, by Simon and Garfunkel called Sounds of Silence. Mm-hmm. And it said, they bowed and prayed to the neon gods they made. Mm-hmm. And what we do with our celebrities, we create, we make them into a neon god. Sure. So we worship them. Yeah. If, a, if a celebrity comes out and mm-hmm. says, uh, we've got to take care of more panda bears, then we got to take care of more panda bears. Yeah. Or if someone says, uh, we've got to be more concerned about this, but we basically make you a machine or a neon god. Or if someone says we have to get vaxxed, and everybody goes to get, I mean, a bunch of people in my generation go and get vaxxed because whatever celebrity said they get vaxxed. Yeah. And, they don't, and they don't ask the question, is this good for me? They just say that somebody told me to do this, I'm gonna go do it. Mm-hmm. I think you're talking about the like the broken system and mm-hmm. this this like the the problem of of like all the, the mental health um, stuff it seems to be more should be looked at as more of a case to case basis on each individual for human sure. because everybody's a different comprehensive human being and we all have different intricacies and things about maybe us. Maybe more so than any other health condition. Mm-hmm 
there is. Yeah. That that mental health is probably the most individualized health. I mean, you can speak to it Absolutely. better than me, but as mm-hmm. a, as a patient, I, I I have experienced that the treatment for my sprained ankle mm-hmm. is going to be pretty standard rest yeah, ice right. elevation right yeah. uh but but what i may need is completely dependent right. on who i am yeah. and, and my circumstance when it comes to to mental health well let me jump in Go on that ahead. one yeah. and this is uh there'll be a couple points from this one is if i take care of 10 kids mm-hmm. with strep throat mm-hmm. i know that 10 out of 10 are going to be pretty straightforward they're all going to get well mm-hmm. if i have 10 patients that come in during the course of a week with anxious anxiousness issues or depression issues or something like that, every one of those 10 is going to be different. And every one of them is going to be much more challenging to determine whether or not I was successful. Well, if I'm seeing you, Royce, and you don't make me feel good about myself because I don't know if I really found the secret sauce to helping you, whether it's therapy, talk therapy, medication, whatever... If you don't make me feel good, and I'm used to feeling good as a doctor because I heal and I cut Mm. and I cure, all of a sudden, you know what? I'm not gonna wanna see you. Mm. Because if I take care of four strep throats, Mm -hmm. I know I'm gonna get it right, and I okay in those four strep throats, I can take care of those four people in less than 20 minutes. I got you come in for a 20 minute appointment, it goes into 35 minutes, I don't feel like I solved anything. I don't know if we're gonna be any better or any further along next time I see you, and so, I'm gonna tell the front desk person, uh, I'm see a psychiatrist, or I'm see a therapist, or um, let's just have them come back in six months. Mm. And all of a sudden, the whole notion of how does a healer help someone who needs healing, how do we help, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. It's just thrown out the window for all these external reasons. And yet here you are, you're an individual, tremendous capability. Who knows, you might solve the nuclear fusion issue, <laughs> but we're simply chucking you aside. Yeah. Well, I want to ask, what, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Like, what's, I guess, I don't want to ask what the solution is, because there's not one solution for everybody. But what would you say is, like, a good place to start for for some of these corporate large corporations, like the NBA, or just any anywhere where they're kind of looking at people as numbers and not as individuals? Well, let me make a suggestion. Let's ask Royce mm-hmm. if he would to just try to go deep for a minute or two and just help us understand the agonizing sense that goes on in his head when he's feeling like he's not where he wants to be in terms of being mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. Because I think we need to strip away the labels and strip away a lot of the the fake stuff. Mm -hmm. Because I know, Royce, that whatever you say in the next couple of minutes, there are going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are going to say, amen, thank you for sharing that. Because mm-hmm. that's the real stuff. Mm-hmm. And we just don't get to the real stuff very often in yeah. mental health. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Um, well, for me, I, I, <clears throat> I, I dealt with anxiety, mm-hmm. right? And it often came at times where I was stressed about multiple things in my life at once, or there was one thing in my life that had that that I had such little vision of how to solve that it in, incapacitated me from doing other things the way I needed to do it, right? <clears throat> and that could be f- that in, in the past that has been family. Uh, sometimes it was school. Uh, sometimes it was legal things, uh, so on and so forth. Never really about performance, never re- never really had to do with athletics at all. Uh, it was always personal life things. Um, and you get to this point where 
you 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 don't have a solution mm -hmm. and there are consequences to not having a solution sure. right mm -hmm. real consequences yeah. me measurable foreseeable consequences to not having a solution mm -hmm. and the fear of those consequences coming cause you to be anxious yeah. and, and and eventually you have panic attacks maybe and 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 having panic attacks i remember the first time i had a panic attack it, it always puzzled me when people talk about separating the physical from the mental. Um, the first time I had a panic attack, it felt like I was having a heart attack. And, and from what I know about panic attacks, if you it, panic attacks are the one phenomenon where if you have those that set of uh, symptoms, they have to do an EKG on you pretty much to out to, to rule out that you had a, didn't have a heart attack. I mean, that's how closely so they similar, present. Yeah. Uh, and symptomatically. Yeah. So I tell people all the time, it's like, I've looked death in the face many times, mm -hmm. right? They, they talk about near-death experiences. Well, people who have had panic attacks it, with any consistency had near-death experiences, right? And, and when I was 16, I had my first panic attack. And for the following three months, I would have ongoing panic attacks multiple times a day. And there was one that would always come at the same time every day. Mm -hmm to the point where I started to fear that time of day. Right after sunset, when the sun would go down, I would start to have these flutters in the chest and it would build. And at the time, I didn't even know it was anxiety or panic. I, I didn't know what to call it, uh, which probably also, you know, uh, added added to the anxiety. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I felt like I was dying. And in those moments, when you're having that, that height of, of anxiety and panic, you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm fortunate because I would have very short stints, but there are people who live in, that I know, who live in perpetual anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, or not, maybe not that acute panic threshold, but somewhere right below it, mm -hmm. but consistently throughout the day. I mean, those people are in real turmoil. Yeah. And, no. and, and I felt it sporadically. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you get to a point, I remember I was, the, the way I initially got diagnosed, I had transferred to high schools. Um, my first panic attack came in the summer after my junior year where I had some trouble. So that may have been contributing to it too. And, and, I, and at the time I wasn't equating that because um, I'm just, you know, just living, just trying to get through. Um, but I was having panic attacks for like three, four months in a row. And I was so tired because I wouldn't sleep. And I was just, literally I was exhausted. But relieved at the same time during the day that it wasn't that eight o'clock time where I knew I was going to have another panic attack. So it was like this dreadful fear, fatigue, and relief, which is the most mixed up bag of emotions to have as a 17-year-old kid. Um, and finally, I just went to the nurse's office and I said, I can't, I, I can't do it. You guys got to, I got to get some type of help here. And Dr. Mary Wilkins, she worked for Park, Park Nicollet. She saved my life. She saved my life. I, I mean, I know where I was headed. Looking back now, I know where I was headed. It was gonna be drugs, it was gonna be alcohol, it was gonna be some type of erratic, you know, disassociated behavior that came from, from that, that state of mind. What do they say, only two days, three days of, of sleep deprivation and it, it, very close to psychosis. Very much. Yeah, and I was working on 90 days. <laughs> Still playing basketball at a high level, though. Yeah. It's miraculous. I don't know how I was doing in retrospect, but the first thing she said to me when I came into her office, we were fortunate to have a, an in-school mental health program, which has been discontinued now, but 
some schools still do it individually. This was part of a, a statewide program where the Parnicolet doctors had donated their time and allowed us to have a family practitioner on site at the, at, at the school. Um, so I never even knew about that. Mm-hmm. I just came to the nurse one day and she just looked at me and she was like, she had this surety on her face like, we know what to do here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was like, you know, there's a woman named Mary Wilkins. She's right back here. She's a doctor and, you know, she'll see you. Um, and, and I walked in her office and she sat me down and she just explained to me what anxiety was mm-hmm. from a scientific standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it gave me so much relief to know that somebody I was talking to knew what this was because I was 100% certain that I was having heart attacks mm-hmm. for three months straight. <laughs> It reminds me a little bit of some of the patients I've seen where um, I'm expecting them to absolutely fall apart when I tell them, yes, you have lung cancer. And sometimes they'll look at me and they've got the biggest look of peace on their face because, like you said, Mary Wilkins told you what anxiety looked like, what Mm -hmm. it was doing. In the same way, what I found in my medical careers, it's the unknown that's the worst. I mean, whatever reality can dish out to us is nothing compared to what we can conjure up in our minds so just being given information sometimes is such a powerful first step absolutely and it sounds to me like you were trying to convey some of that to your um to the nba and saying hold it you know you may not have walked this path but i haven't and i'm not trying to be lazy and i'm not trying to get out of not playing in chicago not at all i just i just know that this is part of who i am and I want to work together so that it isn't an issue. Yeah, no, it was the most, it, it, my effort with the NBA was maybe like, it was the most genuine, it, the most genuine effort to try and just have a real transparent conversation with them. Mm-hmm. It, but but what I could tell was they were so conditioned in the art of the deal, mm-hmm. right? In this sort of dynamic between worker management, ownership, asset, mm-hmm. commodity, and this constant trying to get over on each other that they couldn't accept that I was coming from a genuine place. Well, it's weird because, I mean, my assumption would be that if you're in the NBA, you love to play basketball, and you you're, not gonna, you're not going to do what you're, you're not going to, like, try your best to get out of playing well, basketball. Well, well, in fairness to the NBA, okay, mm-hmm. they're corrupt as day is long. They're, they're what you call a chameleonic politics institution. Mm-hmm. They're going to go where the wind blows. They're they're preservers of the status quo. Yeah. And they're radical centrists. Mm-hmm. That's that's their game. Yeah. Right. They want yeah. that ever expanding middle right. to hide in. Yes. That, that's yeah. who they are politically. Totally. So th- there's that component. But in fairness to them, mm-hmm. there are players who get to the NBA, mm-hmm. who have guaranteed contracts, and 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 who lose that that genuine love of competition on a daily basis, or or maybe they have mental health issues underlying or family issues or or body issues that mm -hmm. that really make Mm -hmm. them try to get away from the competition piece but they still want to be paid so i understand that but that's Mm -hmm. the anomaly okay the the 95 they were treating that like it was going to be the 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 standard (laughs) and i was like no come on guys we can't we can't opt for the standard in the mental health sense Uh, no the 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 anomaly is going to be the guy who malingers mental illness issues, the, the, the majority of us mm-hmm. either really have those issues mm-hmm. or we have an issue that we don't yet understand, right? An issue that needs mm-hmm. to be found, um, uh, you know, or, or there's some other thing going on, physical or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But but the point is that most high-level competitors are going to want that competition, and I certainly was one of them, still trying to, you know, fight the narrative <laughs> of being blackballed in the NBA now to potentially be able to 
I mean, for God's sakes, I switched over to the most dangerous sport yeah. in mixed martial arts, yeah. cage fighting, just because I love the competition. Yeah. There's no other right. reason than the fact that I, I love that, that competition. So, yeah, that was, that was off kilter for them in, to begin with. To shift over into a different topic, I think somebody else that probably loves the competition is Kyrie Irving. And you've, mm. got, you've got like a take on Kyrie Irving, and mm. it's not so much about his ball handling skills, although do you think he's the greatest... He has the greatest handles ever, or do you think it's AI? Or? I think it's pretty close. Pretty no, I'd, close. I'd say yeah. I'd put Kyrie one, and I'd have to make a, 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 a nuanced case for Allen Iverson. Yeah. yeah, I just had to ask that. I know you don't totally understand any of that. I stuff. thought AI was artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, Allen yeah. Iverson. Got it. Uh, okay, I so, that up. thank you. Um, but what? So, what's your take on Kyrie Irving and the whole situation my, my, with the vaccines? <laughs> Big questions. Uh, Thirty seconds. Yeah. yeah. Go. Um, <clears throat> my, my take on the vaccine. Well, here, here. There's. Okay. So I, I, first of all, I just got to be to to start this. I'm a populist. Okay. I believe in populism. I believe in an America first era needed right now not in the general sense all always and forever into the future mm-hmm. we can't know what the future brings and we should be humble enough to change our views based on where we are in real time mm-hmm. any any allegiance to an indoctrinated you know dogma uh makes us ill prepared to deal with the time so i'm a populist right there are four heresies of the west Okay. The first was the scientific method. No, no disrespect. <laughs> okay. The scientific method, democracy, computer technology, and the fourth is going to be artificial intelligence. You got one of them right. Okay. And, yeah. and, and so what I mean by the, the four heresies of the West, and again, I'm an American. Yeah. I believe in the West. Mm-hmm. But there are some fun foundational issues in our that, that haven't been reconciled for a long time. This mm-hmm. isn't a last 60 years or the last four years, three years we've been in a pandemic. This sure. is 400, 500 years mm-hmm. in the works. Okay, and when I mean when I say heresies, I mean that these are the four things that people believed could make goodness where God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. They wanted them to replace God. Okay, well, we're not getting it right. Well, the scientific method will help us. But then it was, well, democracy will solve the issue. Well, then now computers will make everything okay. Mm-hmm. In the future, it's, well, we don't even need humans. Maybe humans are the problem, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this self-destructive nature. And I say that in the vaccine piece because this is the most unsubstantiated blind faith in an establishment after one of the most explicit distrusts in an establishment that's ever been recorded in human history. And I know that because I was I led 18,000 people to the Federal Reserve after George Floyd died. And I asked the question, where did our 30 trillion dollars go? Right. But but I was out there with tons of people who would loosely identify with a pro black lives matter, you know, M.O. was, you know, affiliation. Not that all of them were. Sure. A lot of people say they're Christians, too. They don't make it to church on Sunday. That's right. They don't take the communion. But but. Loosely, they mm-hmm. were Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And it was, F the police, the whole system is guilty. And I'm listening and I'm going, I don't know if they really believe that. Mm-hmm. It's 
pretty sloganeering. It's phraseology, I like to call it, right? It's, I hear it. There's a lot of spirit in it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they really believe that the whole system is guilty. Mm-hmm. I do. That's why I marched us to the Fed instead of the first precinct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but a few short months later, when the rollout of vaccines was, was, was right on deck, was coming to fruition, and then a few months shortly after that, when the entire mainstream establishment vouched for a pro-vaccination method and mandate, without individual health care, without comprehensive models, without any exceptions or, or vaccine, uh, you know, a no waiver, a, a vaccine at all costs methodology, I said, well, the, the medical industrial complex is the system. What's going on here? And so I think Kyrie Irving, he has that intuition in him, right? He is somebody who is, it's, it's, it's premature, okay? It's, it, it hasn't been fully developed because he doesn't come from looking at basketball or the NBA or pro sports in, that, in an explicit political, social context like I do, mm-hmm. right? That that was my introduction into the league was this greater political question about sports and policy and, mm-hmm. you know, mandates and all those kind of things. Sure. Um, but he is somebody who has tried to pull the veil back from his eyes mm-hmm. um, while he's been in that position. Mm-hmm. And I think when the vaccine mandate hit, uh, and and the league said that in the offseason, Mark Tatum, who is the deputy commissioner, put out the uh, the memo that they were expecting all players to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it triggered him into what I think is a very warranted response mm-hmm. where he, he went and he looked and he 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 he, he went to research. He went to do his own independent research. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I think. <laughs> He, he made the right decision. He stood his ground. He won in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now letting him play. Yeah. He's only able to play in away games for the time being. Um, but, but he took a very important stand at a very important time from an institution that has a lot of impact mm-hmm. on culture mm-hmm. in our country and around the world. And, and I tip my hat to <clears> him, um, you know, and... History is going to look very favorably on him, mm-hmm. and and this moment was very that moment was very important uh, for people because he stood everything to lose, yeah. And and they had stacked the chips for him to lose everything, mm-hmm. um, and and I, I can't tell you what the city of New York is doing with the vaccine mandate, and I couldn't tell you why the NBA has bent the knee. You know, when when they go to build an arena, they they use all of their political <clears throat> capital, mm-hmm. okay. They call the mayor, the legislator, the governors, the senators, and whoever else in the corporatocracy they need to, to build a billion-dollar arena and a, a little parking structure right next to it that you know secretly incentivizes you to drink and drive. Let's just be honest. Right. Um, but but they have no problems with you know throwing their political weight around with that. In this situation, either whether you say it was the fear or just uh, the agenda, it was a full stop. Mm-hmm. It, there's no, there's no other way. This is the way. No nuance. Never happened before. And the, the strangest thing about Kyrie's situation, the most blatant contradiction of logic is that you could be an away player, not be vaccinated, come to Brooklyn and play. But you can't be a player who lives in New York City or a Brooklyn Nets player and play at home. 
I think at some level, what we're seeing from Mr. Kyrie Irving, who I've never met, um, but I think we're seeing incredible courage. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can't help us. I'm, I'm sort of a modest sports fan, mm-hmm. but I, I think of Aaron Rodgers, and I think, you know, he also you know, spoke from the heart. I think of Kirk Cousins. And because we do in our society elevate celebrity voices, perhaps beyond what their level of expertise is. Uh, I remember Barbara Streisand when she started getting more politically outspoken at her concerts. Mm -hmm. People went to her concerts to listen to her sing, not to hear her politics. Mm -hmm. But I think what we're going through as a nation, and you spoke earlier about the journey that America might need to travel as we move forward, is we really are in need of a renaissance of what does courage look like? Mm-hmm. And I think Kyrie Irving, I think you, Royce, in terms of being willing to put it all out there, say, you know what, I'm gonna tell you about my foibles and my quirks and my oddities because this is a part of the whole person of who Royce White is. And and I'm willing to do the same. I mean, I've, I tell my patients that I am obsessive and I wish at times that I could be easier going. And I wish I had this personality trait instead of this one Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know what part of that journey on earth is we got to find a way to embrace who we are and and we move forward and hopefully uh, tomorrow's version of who we are today will be better Mm -hmm. and the next days will be even better I think another important name that I'll add to that list of, of athletes is, uh, is Jonathan Isaac yes. from the, yes. the Orlando Magic. Who mm-hmm. He's been a voice, and he's writing a book now, I think, about his, his situation, but he's another important one to add. But, watch for him. Yeah. People need to watch for him and, and, and be supportive. And be, Jonathan Isaac? Jonathan Isaac, Orlando yeah. Magic. Because he, Kyrie Irving, a little harder to blackball. Jonathan Isaac's in the crosshairs. Well, he's writing a book. He's going to be the, the one that they yeah, try and clip with the Daily Wire. I mean, he's mm-hmm. like big time. So, yeah. anyways, we, we got to wrap this thing up. Yeah. What we do at the end of our podcast, we we kind of I do what's good, Scott. And Scott gives something good that's happened to him in the last week to kind of lighten the mood, and, and then I'll do what's good to you as well after that. But what's good, Scott? It's been thirty years since my uh, brother jumped from the 18th story of a building. And it's interesting to me that this morning's conversation brings just a, a little more, a little more peace. So thank you. That's good, man. I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of of Scott's. Um, I'm happy that he's running for for governor. Um, and, and he has my full support in that, and I'm happy to meet him. You know, I, I, one thing that I regret about this stand that I took, and I, I do have some regrets overall. The truth is, is what I am, um, is where my allegiance lies. But, but one of the regrets or one of the sacrifices is, is, and otherwise I would have been able to meet very interesting, very incredible people along that journey of being a professional athlete and, and, and just moving around the world in that sense. I've been kind of just hunkered down in this, this sort of exiled, blackballed place, um, even here in Minnesota, right? Uh, so so uh, being able to meet Scott uh, and be here today and, and have this conversation, uh, I, that, that's incredible for me. I'm, I'm appreciative. Thank you. Yeah, and we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, And thank you, everybody, for listening. And make sure you like, subscribe, follow, and share this with your friends. And make sure to go to drscottjensen.com. And we will see you all in the next one. Goodbye.